So folks, welcome to the Fremantle Chamber of Commerce and our Building Capacity Forum and Podcast called Set the Month in Motion that we produce in conjunction with the City of Fremantle's Economic Development Team. For those of you I haven't met before, uh, my name's Tanisha, I'm the CEO here at the Chamber of Commerce. We are so pleased to be able to bring these very interesting, quite quirky, um, but as what proved to be very um, well-received podcasts and forums uh, to the businesses of Fremantle. For those of you who haven't started following us, set the month in motion. It's available on Apple, on Google, on every <laughs> Spotify, you name it. We'd love to have you follow us and continue to have these great, great conversations. So today we're talking not just risks to business, but the risks that technology in our hands creates and the unknown world of cybersecurity. In recent times, I've witnessed two very strong medium-sized businesses almost come unstuck at the seams through data theft and ransom. One was in the property industry and another in the design industry. Two industries and two businesses that you wouldn't have normally thought would be under such vulnerability. Both businesses were forced to pay to retrieve their files and their plans. And the fact that this could happen to businesses within our midst really got me thinking about where the risks are and um. I guess the unknown, certainly even for ourselves here at the Chamber, around some of these things. These local companies are not alone and today we are lucky enough to be joined by three of the state's leading experts at the front line of the escalating fight of online risk. And it's constantly evolving and constantly changing. I don't envy your jobs at all. Um, so let me start by introducing the panel and then we'll get the questions started. So I'll probably fire off a few questions just to get the discussion going and then we'll hand over to each one of you um, to to ask your specific questions. So first up, we are lucky enough to have who I believe is called the godfather of cybersecurity. In fact, everyone we spoke to about Steve said, ah, the godfather of cybersecurity. Uh, Mr. Steve Simpson is a highly experienced information security consultant working within the communications and IT uh, within secure environments for over 40 years. He has a background of 22 years with the British Army where he worked for uh, GCHQ providing information security advice to highly classified levels of the British government, military and the British government's cabinet office while in Whitehall, London. NATO as a senior member of their IT team working in Bosnia. The British Army's system manager in Afghanistan responsible for the IT components for three rapid reaction combat IT and communication teams. After all of that incredible and amazing experience, arrived to Perth <laughs> in 2006 and since then has been a consultant to a number of local businesses and agencies. He was the chair of the Australian uh, Information Security Association for five years and is a sessional academic at Curtin University. Next to Steve, we have Alice and... Alice works for Bankwest. I think there's no other sector than our banking sector that's at the front line of dealing uh, with cybersecurity risks. Alice is part of the cybersecurity management team at Bankwest, focusing on awareness, community outreach and reporting. She's a technology translator, communicating the challenging complexities and risks related to tech and security. Prior to joining Bankwest, Alice has transitioned across many industries, including tertiary education, mining, engineering, telecommunications, financial services and insurance, in a variety of roles, including auditing, compliance, quality management systems, event, marketing and health and safety. Alice holds a postgraduate and in industry qualifications in information security. And finally, on the end of our panel today, we have a team who truly understands risk to business and the impact that 
these sorts of risks can have on business performance and longevity. Uh, Dan Hutchins, the Head of Risk Consulting for RSM, joined by Rianne Bronkhurst, who is Head of Security and Private Services at RSM. Dan is the principal of RSM's Risk Advisory Services. He manages their risk advisory um, business across WA. He works with boards and management teams to enhance strategic achievement through the provision of forward-looking governance, risk management, internal audit and operational services. While Rianne joins him as a senior manager at RSM, a qualified and experienced audit and consulting professional, Rianne has over 18 years experience in IT audit, cybersecurity, data analytics, technology risk and consulting, risk management, governance and assurance. What an extensive amount of experience we have here and I think the discussion is going to be quite extraordinary. Um, again, on behalf of the Chamber, thank you all for joining us this morning. I'm going to kick off with a question for all of you just initially to answer one by one. And it's very simple exactly what are we talking about when we're talking about cybersecurity? Steve, can you kick that off? Sure. With, with cybersecurity, we're talking about online threats. Anything that you do that connects to the internet has the potential to be attacked. And you are the people that are responsible for it. It's your information. You need to make sure that you have taken the measures to make sure that an attacker can't get them. Because these people out there are criminals and they want your information for sale. Cyber is really just the sexy word for information security and totally agree that um, it is the attacker's world at the moment and we need to get better um, at managing our risks. But really, one of the things that I focus on, it's a human risk. This, the risk to information and its privacy and the trust that businesses have um, really comes down to its employees, its staff being vigilant. And you're either the first line of defence or you're the weakest link. So that's part of my role is to make the staff the first line of defence and pick things up, um, not to be that weakest link um, and to continue to be vigilant. I very much liked Alice's uh, comments and words. One, one of them I noticed was focus. Um, I, I think it's very important to focus on what information is the most important to you and to your st stakeholders down the supply chain. So uh, there's two things I look at when I think about cyber security. Uh, focus on what's important and what makes you your money or makes your business successful, your intellectual property. Uh, the other thing is about vigilance and education. Um, I look a lot at technology solutions, but I, I don't think the human solutions are as robust as they need to be. Um, I see a lot of uh, fraud incidents in recent times, uh, cyber security uh, related fraud incidents, and the failure is in people, not technology. Some of, some of my clients have tremendous technological defences, and they're totally routed by humanity. <laughs> there you go, I've got nothing more to say. <laughs> <laughs> I stole uh, sorry. Yeah, no, pretty much um, cyber for me as well. It's um, a lot of people um, see it as a, as a really complex, it is complex in a sense, because um, you know, if you want to look at the big black hole, there's a lot of lot in that big black hole, but uh, like Dan and Ray said, basically with regard to cyber, um, I think it's a combination not of technical controls. I think there's a lot of um, misperception that it's a technical solution. It's a combination of governance and technical solution that you need to need to bring together and actually to manage your risk within your environment and basically, um, in, a, in theory, protecting your crown jewels based on your risk exposure. It's so interesting to hear that parallel between the technology, I guess, and that individual risk. 
one of the things on that that I'm really interested in is obviously our network parameter has become relatively boundless. They say that um, the cloud-based system is 85% more likely to, to have an attack than others, but also that everyone holds a different device in their hands, in their homes, in their bathrooms, right through to in their workplace. Um, with that landscape, what sorts of things do you think um, businesses are dealing with when our networks are, are spreading and we're no longer relying on just a computer sitting in an office? I get to go first each time. I've got one more question. I get, to make it, I get to make it hard for everyone else. Um, <laughs> the biggest thing, as, as all of us have said, is people. And it, it's our nature. And the, the biggest issue is how we deal with passwords right now. The most common attack at the moment is an, an email account takeover, a cloud email account that the client, that the, um, the attackers can get access to. If they can access that, now they want them want to stay hidden. They don't want you to find them. So they will access your email, they'll create some rules so that every email you get, every email you send, gets sent out to an email account that they're controlling. And they can slowly watch your business and find out what you're doing and then plan their attack from there. Having really good password security is your best defense right now. It's not going to cost you anything. Changing your password every 90 days is a very, very good defense. There are so many attacks and so many breaches happening that your email address and the password that used to be associated with it is available to attackers online. So if you need to make sure that you use good passwords and that you change them regularly. On the password theme, um, the advice that I like to provide is strength is in the length. So with the computing power that we have today, it takes seconds for a four to six character password. So if you make it a passphrase and that long, um, complex password and you change it regularly, that's really going to be the, the key to securing your, your accounts, especially in the cloud environment. And from um, a banking and finance perspective, um, we also have clients with a lot of cloud-based um, financial systems and services that they use. So making sure the passwords on those are strong and hopefully different to your other accounts. So if they're in one, they can't get to the next. So they, can, they can't take that jump because you've reused the passwords. So password reuse and um, the length is in the strength for your, your passwords or passphrases, if you can go there. Uh, when listening to Denisha's question, I, I heard the word boundaries, and it's, um, it's an important thing when applying that to my comment about humanity earlier. Um, we have to train our employees and our, and our colleagues, our vendors and our customers, uh, to think outside of the current boundaries of the office. So uh, we looked at a, a recent example of uh, a vendor whose uh, email had been compromised uh, through their remote access. Uh, and uh, weak password controls were very, ironically, uh, Steve, uh, 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 the root cause of, of that gaining of access of a quite senior person's uh, email accounts. Now that email account was forwarded uh, and used to impersonate the, uh, the vendor and uh, money flowed out the door to that vendor and it obviously didn't go to the vendor, it went to, the, to a third party fraudster. But teaching our staff and, and our customers and our vendors to think about what they're receiving, to critically assess it, uh, uh, and to make sure that things get stopped at the gate. Passwords are a great control, but common sense is also a great control. So an example is you receive an email saying, please change the, the bank account details, you know, 
and uh, it has bad English uh, spelling mistakes, uh, refers to VAT instead of GST, uh, has the numbers in the wrong spot, um, you know, you begin to add it all up and a little bit of education for your staff around things that don't look right and, and a great educator is to double check. So a couple of the smart um, accounts payable staff and finance staff at my clients have rung the CFO and said, look, did you send me this email? And to which the response is, what email? The one to send the half million dollars offshore. <laughs> Poor old QCFO falling off chair onto, onto the cafe floor. Um, Now I've said it all. <laughs> um, but uh, the education this becomes very powerful and to teach our staff to, to think beyond the boundaries, to think about what they're doing at home when they work on their home computers and do they have the same levels of security and the same security mindset when working on a home device. Uh, uh, your home phone, your home iPad, it's very, very important that they think beyond the employment boundary to, to the electronic boundary, if you like. Sorry, there was a question. Good morning. My name is... Is this working? Okay, great. My name is Doris from ESS Worldwide. I'm a migration agent and all our systems are clouded, um, even immigrations, uh, immigration departments as well. Um, in terms of passwords, I, I very much want to get on board and change it every three months, but I'm, I'm struggling on how to manage my passwords, where to save them, especially the long ones, the long weird ones uh, with multiple numbers and letters and um, so what do you suggest? Where should I keep all those passwords that I'm changing every three months? Because I can't remember them um, all. That's my limitation. Um, well, the easiest solution or the best solution is a password manager. Basically having a password manager that, can, um, <coughs> that you can use, that, that you can store your password securely. Make sure the password manager that you choose is basically a reputable one as well. And <coughs> what the password manager <coughs> Sorry. Um, one of the benefits of a password manager is it basically can auto-generate passwords for you. They can generate very strong passwords for you with regards to maintaining and updating your passwords as well. That's pretty much simple because you can actually set it to automatically update your passwords as well based on your various sites as well. So that's my recommendation. I'm not sure the panel um, would... The, uh, the password managers work really well. Uh, many of many of the good ones are free. You can put them on a tablet or on an iPhone. Uh, as Ryan said, you can generate very strong passwords, but you don't have to then sit there and try to remember each character to tap it in, because you can just copy it and paste it in, and then secure it away. Just make sure that the password you select for the password manager is strong and memorable, because if you forget that one, you will not get back any of the others back. Yes. Multi. Yeah. Uh, Multi-factor authentication is one of the strongest things you can have at the moment. It, it comes free if you use things like PayPal, but it adds that extra level of security which an attacker cannot simulate. I always feel much more comfortable when I can have that double, that little click on my phone that says here's another code that you put in that like Doris, I don't actually have to remember because I do struggle. I must spend half my life trying to remember what my passwords are. So the password manager you're talking about is basically just an app and there are levels of security within those. So I think that's important for people to bear in mind when they're downloading them. At the chamber, I had to laugh. We even had an incident the other day where um, our accounts lady crept into my office very quietly and she said, I'm going to organise the things you requested. 
I said, what things I've requested? She said, the gift vouchers, the 10 of them for all the team. And I said, we don't have 10 people in our team. And then we looked at the actual email and as you said, not written in any language that certainly I would use. Um, but it's amazing how easy it is for staff to, to pick those things up. One experience that we had earlier this year, an organisation had had their email compromised, but they didn't know. And the attacker had just been sat there reading emails for a long time and learning how the CEO communicated with, the, with her PA, the language, how they referred to each other, how they gave tasks, how they reported back. And the attacker waited till exactly the right moment. The CEO had just left. He's got access to the calendar. He knows exactly what's happening. Uh, as soon as she's left, we get an email about the, um, I've just given you some tasks. I need you to add this other one, and I need you to get some gift cards. And it was exactly how the CEO would have done it. The attacker knew they'd used gift cards in the past. And the, and the PA had a fairly lengthy five or six email conversation with the attacker, and everything seemed fine until she said, that's okay, I'll give you a call just to confirm and then I'll get them. And the attacker came back going, no, I can't talk on the phone right now, I'm in a meeting. And the PA knew she wasn't in a meeting and that's when they phoned us. And it's almost, I think, alarming when all of us work in businesses and even locally where our businesses are not large, we're not multinational corporations, the thought that someone would target us <laughs> as opposed to another business that maybe has more money than the Chamber of Commerce, who knows, <laughs> to even afford the gift vouchers, um, that we're all vulnerable yeah. in one way or another. Um, Alice, from your experience at, at the bank, what makes an organisation, because you must see a variety of different organisations, what makes one organisation more vulnerable than another? Going back to knowing the risk and knowing where your crown jewels lie, if they haven't done that, that risk management piece, they don't know what they've got and so they don't know what could be attacked or what could be valuable to an external party, whether it's IP or information about going public or an IPO or um, a merger coming up as such. So businesses really need to understand their risks and I think have some professionals in there doing that, that cyber risk piece for them as well and we talk about um, everybody is vulnerable as well so we've got a big piece with our um, all of our staff where our customers are all vulnerable vulnerable as, as we are at some point in their life whether it's age mental health um, you're busy that can be you're vulnerable because you're busy I hear so many oh I clicked on that phishing email I was just really busy um, don't, don't give that one to me. <laughs> um, you'll get more training and we'll have a one-to-one -one session. Um, yeah, knowing the risk and understanding what, what you've got, understanding your crown jewels, really. So, yeah, everybody's vulnerable at some point. And also being that harder target. If you have a couple more things in place from a IT security and a training awareness piece, you will be that little bit of a harder target. The attackers go, oh, too hard basket and move on. So if you can just be that little bit harder target and then move on to the next softer target, I think that's a good piece. And I guess it's almost like a burglar on the outside world is going to go into the house with the open window or the open door. And I think a lot of what we're talking about is how to keep those doors closed, so to speak. Um, obviously, times are fairly tight financially and you mentioned pulling in experts from time to time, Alice, just to check on your cybersecurity risks and those sorts of things. Um, 
Steve, I know you help a lot of different organisations um, across the years from, I imagine, having quite large budgets to protect this sort of thing to incredibly small ones. Thinking about some of those small businesses, if I've only got $10 to spend on my gift card or my cyber security, what would you recommend spending it on? If you've got a limited budget, and we'll go with the $10 scenario, $5 would go on educating yourself and your employees. Half of the budget. We are the strongest asset, we are the weakest link. I would spend three on monitoring, finding out what's going on. An awful statistic right now is that most incidents take an average of 200 days to be identified. And that's pretty appalling. And that's going across some very, very big businesses as well. So having some monitoring place, knowing what's going on, having the ability to look at maybe your firewall logs to see what's happening, is somebody trying to get in, that's valuable. And the last $2 then I would spend on the technologies. But security awareness and monitoring would be my two big biggest targets. I just have a couple more questions before we fully go over to the floor. Alice, a recent Forbes article noted phishing attacks are up 290% in the last 12 months. That is an extraordinary statistic. For those of us not so technically literate, phishing, vishing, smishing <laughs> and whaling, they sound a lot like, obviously, phishing analogies, but what do they really mean and how do they relate to the risk of payment forward for business? So this is one of my, my favourite topics. Um, so these are all very technical terms and terms I get to use every day. They are official terms in our, in our industry. So phishing is um, social engineering, some information details or credentials via email. So we're all quite familiar with that. Um, vishing is the next one that's really on the rise as well, is over the phone. So someone is soliciting details from you as they make a call and pretend usually to be someone um, from somewhere you know or somewhere you trust as well. Given it's tax time, there's some ATOs and some tax agents um, calls going around. Um, and then you've got schmishing, which is SMS phishing. So everybody's probably received one of those texts, you've won a voucher, no you haven't, don't click there, or to cancel your card or especially from a banking perspective, our customers will see these in the same contact list because it's very easy to display the same name as your bank in your line of, gr of your grouped text messages from that um, provider or that bank as such. So we have to be really vigilant about what we're, what we're seeing and the communications from a bank perspective as well. So phishing, vishing, schmishing, and then on to whaling. So whaling is really, is phishing, but it's targeted. It's targeted at the executives or those with financial control in the organisation. So whaling is going for the big guys and girls in the, um, in the, in the aquarium that you have that I like to analogise as your as workplaces. So this from whaling and what we've, we've touched on before um, is one of the major or one of the types of business email compromise um, scams or, or frauds that they like to perform. It's one of the angles. So we call it CEO payment fraud. So it's pretending to be that CEO and asking for things to be done. And usually it's when um, 
that they'll know the travel plans, they'll know where they are, they're just stepping on a plane. So the attacker's got three, four, five hours if they're going across the country to start sending emails and that CEO or that executive won't see this back and forward either. So it's really sneaky and sophisticated and we need to be just as organised because they are only getting more organised. The other um, payment fraud thing that we see is um, that supply chain um, management or through the supply chain is they'll um, take over a vendor or a supplier that has, again, they might be a weaker um, in weaker link in the chain of events and payments and then they'll ask for their bank accounts to be changed um, and if that's not quite quite right that doesn't seem like the right request and since they've always had this bank account for 10 years what's happening and the advice that we always give is verify trust but verify pick up the phone go to their actual website call the person in finance there um, make those extra, um, take those extra steps to verify that this is where the payment is meant to be going or the payment is actually meant to be made. Because they know these things, they could be in the email and that's why we call it business email compromise. They'll sit, they'll wait and they'll just bide their time because they've got lots of time on their hands as such. So yeah, you've got the CEO or the executive uh, fraud and then you've also got the supply chain um, incidents where suppliers change their payment details and you're paying the wrong account. And as soon as it goes to that wrong account, the fraudsters will start moving it quickly. That's why from a banking perspective, we really need to know ASAP if any suspicious transactions have happened or if a payment has been made and maybe it shouldn't have been as well. We can put holds on the accounts. All the banks can do that. Call your relationship manager, call your bank and flags can be put on those accounts so nothing more is lost as such. So trust but verify, verify, verify. Two-step authentication is great. Um, and yeah, take those extra steps to and be vigilant. I really like Alice's comments about, about the whales because uh, I have a CFO that was talking to us earlier in the year back in January and uh, he said to me, Dan, it's driving me mad. The impersonation of me is reaching a level at which it's becoming a, a distraction to my work. And he goes, I've had 17 me's emails that weren't me. Uh, you know, I said, oh, what, this year? And he said, no, no, this month. Um, he said, I've had them from accounts payable, from the assets team. from it. So the the, um, the fraudster in question has... has gone online, found the executive team from the annual report, impersonated three of them, interestingly the ones who are likely to generate payments or, or asset related activity. Um, now he's gone to two-factor authentication for all of his apps. He was just so annoyed by it and so fearful. He's, the fear is obvious in his eyes. He spoke about it at an audit committee in front of his governing body and said, look, I've had to make a, a customised reaction and this is becoming more common. So this this sort of um, uh, CFOs in particular, uh, CEOs are an obvious one, but CFOs are, you know, have a high delegation to make significant payments and are usually one of two key signatories. So this sort of customised security response because the crown jewels of information in this case is payment related information or payment rights. So um, <laughs> I think we'll find in the future that this customised response for people in positions of, of power or in control of very important information uh, it will become more and more common. Interestingly, I saw him just recently, he was um, looking a little bit more relieved and <laughs> half a smile on his face, not quite a whole smile, but saying that the level had reduced, which goes to the point that if you make yourself a harder target, they walk away. So interestingly, foc they focused more on his colleagues after that, once he had moved to a, a customised security posture. Uh, they, 
they leaned over harder on his colleagues who then also went to the same posture and now and now the levels of uh, fake emails have dropped substantially so it's interesting that uh, i liked alice's comment about hard targets because it, there is an element of truth to it it doesn't mean that your exposure disappears entirely but it it does make uh, you harder and they'll move on to, to, to the next most easy thing wherever that is which is the next organization and their annual report and their executives <laughs> Taking that, knowing your payment um, process as well and having multiple people involved in that process, so you're adding a multi-factor or multi-human piece to the, to the payment um, process. That's great advice. Uh, I had to smile when you were talking about payments because that obviously is a massive risk for all of us. Um, in a previous role, I got a rule set up in my book that actually just took all invitations to events into a junk file. I'm not sure exactly what they were trying to achieve there, but it meant that I missed a few important functions. <laughs> but yeah, so it's interesting what they target. You would think payments, you would think those sorts of things are big targets, but yeah, even rules for diaries can have quite a significant disruption business on the business. Um, just on the scale and the difference of those, um, Dan and Rianne, I had a question just I noted that the EU General Data Protection Regulators really doubled down on the data drive regulatory compliance component, particularly around privacy and reportable incidents. Um, is Australia moving the same way and what does this mean for local business in terms of what is reportable? It's interesting to watch Australia's stance on you know, data breach reporting. We, we have our regime now and unless you're under three million bucks and that's not an awful lot of turnover in this day and age or, or a public sector entity, you, you're basically in the game about having to report data breaches and, and obviously talk to, to the affected customers as, as it is in most cases. But the GDPR is a, a whole new level. The, the fines are enormous. The, the obligations are significant. Um, what I noticed in the early days of, of both our regime and the, and the European data breach regime was that Australia thought it was off the hook because it was a European thing. And uh, the European rules uh, have a lot of hooks to catch you. So if you've got, if you're selling stuff to European customers, if you've got European employees over here on secondment, there's a whole bunch of sort of uh, things you wouldn't naturally think about that can hook you in. If you're taking supplies from European um, suppliers, if they're down your supply chain, all these things can hook you in. Rihanna and I spoke with a, a business that provides, um, I'll loosely call it backup services, IT backup services. And uh, they've been ticking along quite happily for a couple of months and then went, oh, wait a minute, what's our customer base look like? And they sort of started reefing through their, their customer list to find that about a quarter had some form of European data inside the thing that was being backed up and suddenly they had to be uh, GDPR compliant and rapidly raced to get compliant so that when their customers came to them and said, are we covered? they could say yes, not, uh, we'll be get back to you in five minutes. It's not, not a great look. They had a, a genuine threat of customers walking because they couldn't offer the same level of compliance that their customers were going to be expected to have. So um, the European regulations are really, really strong. They catch you faster and easier than you think. Um, in Australia, obviously, if we get hacked and, and customer and vendor and other important sources of data make it into the public domain and there's an element of hurt, I won't bore you with the legal terminology, but if, if there's damage to the customer in some fashion or, or the person whose data's uh, leaked out, then you've got an obligation to report it. Um, that's the start. I think uh, knowing Australia's general attitude to black, le black letter law and compliance, we will find our, our obligations getting stronger over the years rather than weaker. I think there'll be a natural gravitation to the European style. Everyone will ask, well, if Europeans protect their, you know, their, their citizens 
and they're civilians in that way, why don't we? You know, and the more that major hacks happen, and we saw some interesting stuff over at a university the other day, the more and more we see of that, the more the government will be pressured to, to lift to standards that Europe applies. So um, I, I'm not sure the when. I, I can see it in a frame of three to seven years that will you know, lift our standards. But for now, I'm thinking that um, making sure you're ready for that change uh, proactively is a better thing than sitting and waiting for it to happen to you. Um, and I think it's interesting that what we're talking about in that area of data protection is protecting our customers and our vendors' information from going out into a public realm. Is that Am I right in that understanding? Yeah, great. Um, love to hand over to the floor and maybe, um, Rianne, you can be first up to uh, answer the question if it's relevant. Um, any questions specifically? To me has actually possibly helped me with this, but in terms of the passport manager, any particular software you recommend for a small business? Is that something I can ask today? Look, honestly, I don't like to um, recommend a specific vendor. I would, <coughs> I would, I would rather take it another way. I would basically go with regards to your mostly your security organisations, like the, the ones that that that's got your normal antivirus software, that provide free password managers with their packages and, um, but. Also, there is um, there's resources online to actually do a bit of research with regards to understanding the password managers that is available, the ones that's free, how they are encrypted. So that's a, that's another one that needs to be um, considered as well. Make sure that the, that the actual password manager um, the data is encrypted, where they keep your passwords as well. Um, so sorry, I just as a norm, I will never recommend a specific vendor if that's okay. Uh, just on the firewall um, side of things with logs and that, um, we just had our, f uh, we've got 50 staff and we just had a firewall um, replaced. We, we paid two and a half grand for the firewall, it's a lot of money, and um, our internal IT guy just changed it over with a four or five hundred dollar one, and the external guys are saying you should ch use a two and a half grand one. Can you give us any feedback on the firewalls and just checking of the logs? Um, the firewalls themselves vary greatly. You can go right up to 30,000 yep. uh, if you've got the expenditure and, own, and if you've got that sort of risk that you need to manage. The firewalls themselves, all of them have some logs that they generate and you want it really to, um, to export the log on a fairly regular basis. If you're a small business, then exporting the log every Friday and reviewing that to see if there are any unauthorized connections, um, if there's been any breach attempts, then, then that's going to give you some good level of, of reporting. If you are working in a larger business, then we do things real time. We're exporting uh, events that are occurring from the firewall immediately to an, an automated device, which will then analyze that and gener generate reports automatically. But at a, at a small business level, absolutely dedicate a certain amount of time every week to look through and just see if there's something unusual on there. You may well need someone to help translate that for you. Go or go to the manufacturer of the firewall and find out what codes they use, how you're going to be able to understand what the output from that firewall is. Is there any training that people can... That would depend that. entirely on, on the make of the firewall. Okay. Each manufacturer would have their own training. Yep. I, I, I am quite a big fan of going on YouTube and finding free training. Um, 
there's so, so many people out there who are just keen to make little videos and try and make themselves famous, and they work. I, I taught myself how to weld <laughs> using, using YouTube. My house hasn't fallen down yet. Um, you use things like YouTube, use the resources that are there that are free uh, and find out. Do a search on the, the manufacturer of the firewall, find out what its capabilities are, find out if they recommend any of the videos for training. Thank you. Um, just another question, just on the, if, if we had a, um, someone fraud an email and then we got the guy on the phone saying, you know, you haven't transferred the 60 grand yet. Um, what do we, who do you ring? I mean, I rang the, you know, the police obviously and, no one seemed to have any interest. This, so this is a bit of, it's, a, it's an unusual area. The police themselves, most of the normal police stations, don't actually have a good awareness of the, of the really good um, technology team that are working with WO Police. They have a fantastic technology team out there that are good. But you've also got something called ACORN, and you can report online via ACORN. ACORN is the Australian... Cybercrime Online Reporting Network, A-C-O-R-N. Yeah. And that's that would probably be my, uh, my path for that one. And just a final question, just on training of the staff. Have you have any slides that I could use to train our staff on this sort of thing, or? <laughs> to have a chat with the gentleman next to you who's my managing director here. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's really hard to get the people to pay attention when you're talking about the, you know, changing bank account it details. Is. Staff, it's really difficult to get Again, you will find free stuff on, on YouTube okay. and, and available on the internet. Google it. <laughs> Thank you. I was just going to hand over to Alice, because obviously as part of her role at the bank, um, staff training training and user training is a massive part of what you do. Um, did you have anything you wanted to add? Yeah, at Bankwest we offer our business customers one complimentary cyber awareness training for their, um, for their staff and their group. So if you're a Bankwest um, customer that can be arranged through you, usually through your relationship manager. But a couple of other resources um, that I'd really like to point out and encourage you all to have a look at is the Australian Cyber Security Centre and Stay Smart Online. So both of those are government run, they have resources there and they put out updated educational and awareness information. Um, on Stay Smart Online you can actually register for the scam alert as well, so you know the trends in phishing that are coming through, like tax time scams that are, are trending at the moment. And yeah, once you, once you can understand um, what sort of maturity and what sort of risk you have, um, have a look at ACSC. Um, the Australian Cyber Security Centre and also Stay Smart Online has some great resources to a small to medium enterprise um, and personal as well. So when, when you do your awareness training, one thing that I'd encourage you to look for is make sure that there's some practical advice and it's both that advice can be shared in both your personal life and your professional life as well because how you act at home will be similar to how you act at work, hopefully, um, with the cyber hygiene that you do. There's some really basic cyber hygiene that you can do. It's just like washing your hands and drying them, because we know that's that needs to be done as well. After you go to the bathroom, there's some really um, basic ones you can do, like the essential eight, I'm going to call out from the um, Australian Signals Directorate as well. So try the government websites. Um, they're, they're really great informational infographics. Um, put posters around your office, yeah, and, and spread the message as, as far as you can. Just on, on, your, pi on your pins, on, on your phone and on your... Have you guys all changed to six and eight pins now from four? Yep, all of you have? Yep. <laughs> okay, no worries. 
just a quick follow-up on the training. One um, thing to add, I love the ASD, uh, the, 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 I call it the famous say, they've got their lovely name for it, but we've seen some training where uh, there's great generic content, but there's a, a failure sometimes to tailor it to the unique uh, scenarios of your industry. So uh, forgive me, I don't know your industry, sir, but um, like if, if you've got a particular uh, type of attack that comes in in your industry, like trying to grab IP or trying to make accounts payable payments or attacking your executives, I, I like to use scenarios in my training that everyone has known and heard about from my industry. So generic examples are great, but it, it sort of gets the attention of staff when you can say this happened to you know Fred over there or Mary over there, or this happened to us. They're the ones that are most powerful. Like we got stung for an amount of money, if you don't want to say how much, or we nearly got stung. Um, one of our clients did some training at our recommendation recently, and they used the examples from inside the shop. Now, that takes a level of courage because um, some of them actually happened and others got others were prevented. But people sit up and take notice because they, their necks are on the block if they let it happen again. So, uh, you know, it's putting a little bit of skin in the game for the audience to say, uh, I'm expecting you as a, as a leader of your organisation to stop this from happening and everyone will sit up and pay attention to slides one, two and three as you go through the case study. So if you can and if, if you've got relevant material from your organisation, that's the best. Uh, if you've got it from your industry, well, learning from the suffering of others is always a bit nicer rather than your own, but um, you know, that sort of brings the attention level in the room up a little. Yeah. I think it's such a good point that you make and, and particularly bringing it down to that personal level. I think, you know, we can't imagine leaving our workplace and not putting the alarm on or not shutting the door. Um, and I think these risks are so new and they are so evolving and so quickly that I think getting our heads around it's not as complex as we think it is, um, that we just do normal things that we would do in daily life. We just have to do them online and you don't give your front door key to everyone that's walking down the street. So let's make sure that we don't have easy ways to get our passwords and those sorts of things. Sorry, my time. Sorry. Um, I just want to follow up on um, the discussion we had earlier about the uh, firewalls. The gentleman here asked uh, if a cheaper or a more expensive firewall would be, uh, uh, would be better. Now, in terms of firewalls, it's important to know that more expensive firewalls give you better features and better control over granular, more granular control over your, uh, over your network. But also a firewall is, is um, you shouldn't be reactive, but you should be proactive. So you should plan what traffic you want through your network and not at the end of the week, look at your log and see what's, what has gone wrong or has gone right. You need to, if you do something like that, it's not a matter of plugging in a firewall and saying, now, now, I'm, now I'm secured. It's a matter of planning that properly and get a, getting a professional to configure the traffic that you want to allow in and out. Second question is, um, we were talking about um, um, main about phishing and whaling. Now, um, technical solutions, they will always be hacked. Um, because we're not talking about social engineering, really. Um, in terms of um, people hacking other people's bank accounts and taking money out, in the olden days, um, we used to have a seven-day clearance for your checks. So basically, if I transfer money to somebody else using a check, it took that other person seven days to actually get access to that money. Now, are the banks actually considering putting something like that back into motion? Would customers accept that? Seven yeah. days for a transfer? Uh, I, like, in this day and age, yeah. if I uh, send out an invoice, I never get paid on, on terms. 
Yeah, 14 days are reasonable yeah. terms, but nobody ever pays it 14 days. It's takes managing general, the risk. Yeah, it takes you in general, it takes you um, a month to one and a half months to get money out of a client these days. Mm. So the extra seven days that, that should be added to that would basically um, make the make my uh, my payment systems a lot easier. I wouldn't have to worry. I would, wouldn't have to worry too much anymore. Sometimes there are some settings that you can set up if that's your preference as a customer. But a lot of our customers in the banking industry and fintech is going with everything has to be instantaneous and twenty four seven. So we implement um, processes like ID checks, verification, um, and yeah, there's different things you can um, do to p for your each of your accounts if you want to limit the uh, transaction amount or if you can transfer internationally. All of those things that you can do. What we need to remember is fraud and scams are quite different. So fraud is where um, someone uses a banking product in an unauthorised way, so a stolen credit card to buy something online, that's fraud. Where a scam is the customer or the victim participates and actually decides that they want to send money in that case, whether it's a romance scam or an investment scam. So there are definitely things in place and we have a know your customer um, piece of work as well. And if this seems like an unusual transaction, we have tellers and um, branch managers who will actually stop that payment and hold that payment. And we've saved a lot of customers a lot of money from having that knowing your customer um, piece of um, work across all of our um, customer facing um, teams. So this is where something was caught in a, an an older lady came in and she had actually someone on the phone in her handbag. She had a phone in her handbag and she was trying to whisper to the teller, as like, I've actually got someone on the phone and they're making me do this transaction. And that was the, the really, that interference piece where the teller and the branch manager knew this, this lady over time and it wasn't normal. And that's a sort of um, training that we are providing to, to our staff and, and banks are doing because everybody's vulnerable at some point in time. So we need that human, again, first line of defence or the weakest link, but then also certain technical controls and then what the customer wants as well. If you want that, um, that's fine, but a lot of the um, technology and the banks need to be instantaneous and quick. Um, to make those those payments in 24/7. Uh, yeah, just a quick question uh, around uh, types of different types of attacks. There's a I heard there's a lot more things like bot attacks where they're using uh, automated uh, systems to try and attack, especially firewalls, uh, sophisticated firewalls, firing a lot of different types of things at the firewalls. And how does that work? And uh, what are the vulnerabilities for businesses and, and what you, can you do to uh, minimise a lot of that vulnerability? Bot, bots are, um, it's, it's, it's an abbreviation for robotic, it's an automatic type attack. We use the term in different ways at the moment as well. The, the original term bot, we would have uh, a criminal, the criminal has developed some code and he's used this code to infect a large number of computers. And he he'd be referred to as a bot herder. <laughs> we love our terms. Um, and he may have 100,000 computers that are under his control. And we had uh, an attack here in Perth a, f a few years ago and it's what we would call a denial of service attack. The bot herder was we believe he was proving what he could do. 
and he had, I think it was 15,000 computers all tried to connect to this business in Perth within a one second period. He gave the command, they all tried to connect and it was one of Perth's utilities. And the firewall hadn't been configured correctly. So the firewall should prevent too many connections. But the firewall allowed all 15,000 in one second through. They got to the web server. The web server just keeled over and died. And it took uh, well over a day to get that back up and running. But we also have smaller bots now. And the bots can be working um, on a more individual level. Um, You've seen the, the capture type uh, security when you go to some websites and it's trying to prove that you're not a robot and that's trying to prevent bots from getting in. And the bots are running a set series of scripts to try and um, perform certain functions that will allow access. Once it gets so far, then a human can take over and continue the attack. But you're, the, the capture type um, technologies should prevent that. Does that answer the question? Yeah. Okay. Awesome. Any other questions from the floor? I have another one. Um, it sounds all pretty scary after all, even though I'm sure there's lots of individual things we can do and I, I have a big to-do list for, for, for today. But uh, is there insurance available for these kind of things? That's what's what I'm thinking or hoping. Uh, there most certainly is. and. Uh, I've, I've had an interesting road with it. I've, I've actually insured a large organisation in, in a former life for cyber security. And, and in that adventure, looking at different policies, I found that you need to have a little bit of an eye for detail when you go into that market. Um, it's maturing, which is good. So compared to five years ago, uh, the, the policy coverage has, has matured a lot. But a, a couple of words of advice if you're going down that road, have a look at the sublimits and, and some of the um, uh, the exclusions from cover. Now, like, like insuring your car or your house, sometimes it's worth a look at that second page about what is and what isn't covered and the limits on certain types of uh, damage or, or loss. So um, in the early days, the cyber security policies had uh, a significant number of limitations. A good example was they might limit um, legal cost to $2 million. Now, uh, that's not a, a big deal if it's a, a, a minor breach and you're a small business, but for some of my larger corporate clients, two million bucks gets eaten up in about a month with expensive lawyers. No offence to any lawyers in the room. <laughs> I'm jealous of your fee-earning potential. Um, but but, uh, but the, yeah, that, that wasn't enough for a large organisation. There were also certain types of losses where they would, they would cap their liability because, in fairness, the insurers and the underwriters were very concerned that they could get caught if the business went to the ground and the entire value of the business was lost, they could be up for tens, hundreds of millions of dollars. So they, they capped out their liability. Now you can increase that, you can make agreements with the underwriter to increase the cover uh, and you'll pay for that accordingly. But uh, taking the default when your exposure could be two, three, ten times as great um, is something to be watchful for. And also exclusions. So get to that section called what isn't covered and have a good old read. You know, there, if there are exposures that you definitively have that aren't covered. Well, you can get that removed for the exclusions. You'll, you'll pay for it again. Um, or you might not get it removed totally, but they might <coughs> cap their exposure to you for that type of exposure. And if you're happy with that, great. If you're not, we'll go off and find another underwriter. But that's a little bit of a, um, a, a trap if you're not experienced in looking at those policies. Um. Just also on the, on the insurance, um, as Dan said, 
there are there are other clauses and one of the things they're going to do is they're going to give you a questionnaire on what security you've got in place the more security you've got the lower your premiums are going to be but just like insuring your car if you tell them that your car's stored in a garage every day and it, it gets stolen off the driveway they're going to weasel out of the payment if you tell them you've got all this security in place and it's not they will weasel out of the payment We just take one last question from the floor. Yeah, um, I've only got a small business, and I was considering uh, cyber attack insurance. Um, the primary risk was attack against the bank account. Um, the premiums were quite high, and I spoke to my bank manager about it, and they said, provided I've got a recognised antivirus software, um, and they've got the dual authentic authentication process on the payments. Um, that they would underwrite any losses. So I decided to sort of step away from the cyber attack insurance. Um, any comments? Um, you know, you, I mean, I know if given the opportunity, they'll weasel out of any obligation to reimburse me, but so will insurance companies. It is horses for courses. As Dan said, read all the small print, read the second page, third page, fourth page. All those tiny little paragraphs, make sure it does what you need it to do. That, that's the best advice I can give. Um, I'd also recommend having a look at um, your bank's website. There's usually a security centre or um, some, f some part of the website that will um, explain all the features that, that's available to customers as well. Understand those and when you're covered and when you're not covered as such. And if you do have a suspicious payment, call your bank first, then you, then the police maybe. And then um, because if the, the bank is informed, we can actually put flags and holds on accounts so nothing else happens until the, the fraud team has had an, a chance to investigate as such. And then maybe if it's reported, and this is the same as phishing emails, we can do something about it. And if we see the same thing to other customers, we can, we can save them from the same sort of style attack as such so we know where that that payment is going and we know that that we flag that other account that they've said to send the money to as such so there's lots of things that the bank can do from a fraud perspective if they're told but have a look at the security center um, piece of the website for your bank as well there's all different features that you can get from them as well Sorry, just one uh, one thing that might assist you. If you have a broker, um, it's time to give them some love and buy them some lunch or have them buy you lunch. <laughs> Depends on the position you're in. But um, uh, I, I find that not enough people work their broker hard enough. Uh, if you have an insurance broker, their job is to know the market on your behalf. So I, I, I do find a lot of people trying to research for themselves and they're letting their broker off the hook. You're paying them for their service and then doing all the work for them. Yeah, yeah that's good. Okay, so... Uh, but if... Yeah, if the, Steve's absolutely right. If the... If the coverage doesn't and the exclusions and the limits and the sublimits don't work for you get your broker to get on their horse and do a bit of work for you that's their job um, and that's the place I mean things like public liability and you know, for those of us in services professional indemnity they're not that hard in this day and age they're very established markets cyber's not yet properly established in my view so I, I, I would I would get your broker looking at the market in a little more detail I don't think all the brokers are fully across that market and across the nuances so um might be time to sort of over that pasta dish get them to earn their fees and um, sorry to all the brokers in the room too. We <laughs> <laughs> will cover you for the investigation and the remediation. So the money you lose at the data, that's not covered by your cyber insurance. It will just cover the people like yourself that come and investigate and remediate. 
This year in the US, um, two different Californian councils have been held to ransom with ransomware. And they have, to get their information back, they have had to pay the ransom, and both of them, their insurance covered that. So if that's one of your threats, make sure that's covered. And in the two instances, I think that I mentioned the design company and the property company, in both cases, I think the insurance covered the ransom, but there was the loss of reputation to their clients that actually um, caused some significant damage to business. And I think, again, it's that human element, isn't it? Even with all the controls in place, if, if these things occur and they damage our reputations, it's also very hard to, to come back from them, some of those situations where our customers are relying on us to keep their data safe and to keep our, our businesses going. We could talk on this all day. Um, an amazing, amazing insight. I think for myself, and I'm sure for everyone in the room, the expertise here, as I mentioned at the start, is extraordinary. And um, we are so very grateful for your time and commitment to discussing um, the issue with us. There is so much to learn. And I think my takeaway is also just, again, that human element and making sure our staff are listening to the podcast, but also um, that we all look at, at some of those really simple things that we can do to make a difference.